Who or what is the corpse? Is he the living dead come to kill us all? Or is he a soldier of justice condemned to walk the face of the earth, fighting a never-ending mission against lawbreakers so that society may function? Is he dead or alive? Man or Superman? Friend or foe? Monster or master? Angel or devil? Vigilante or victim? Plague or gift? He is all of these things, and he is none of them. He is the corpse. Chapter 3 Enter the Professor Later that morning, Chief Pringle had just gotten off the phone with the mayor, who had given him more than an earful, when Captain Madison poked his head through the double doors leading to his office. Chief, I've got some good news and bad news, Madison said. Come in, Andy. I could use some right now. I just got done with a good chewing out by the mayor. He saw the ledger this morning, and he didn't like it one bit. Oh, sorry to hear that, Chief. I wish there was something I could do. Oh, what's the bad news? I need that first. Fingerprints came back. He's not in any databases that we can find, state or federal. FBI came up empty, too. What's the good news? We got a speck of DNA off the dead guy's coat. It wasn't much, but it was enough to work with. So we have a suspect out of that? The chief asked, hopefully. Well, yes and no, Madison said. Speak English, man. Okay. The DNA could not be matched to anyone. The cells are... How did the ME phrase it? They're all torn up, each one damaged beyond identification. That's no help, Chief Pringle grumped. Ah, but it is. The cells we have seem to have been damaged in the same way as that sample we got off the minister, Madison responded. You mean Giacomo D'Alessandro, the hood? We thought he was rubbed out by the Cesare gang. Yeah, that's what we thought at the time, and we just wrote off the corrupted DNA sample as spoilage, something that happened during the process of collecting the sample or in the laboratory. Here's the rub. There's no way to match up the samples precisely because each cell is damaged in a different way. It's like that old myth about two snowflakes never being exactly alike, but the samples do resemble each other in the particular manner of the damage, which is unlike anything I've seen anywhere else. Just ripped to shreds. This could mean that the corpse was behind both killings. Oh, at least we know what we're dealing with. Or who? Strike that. At least we know we've dealt with him before, whatever he is. Yeah, God help us. Now we know now the corpse isn't a figment of the imagination. He is real, and he is, in a way that most anyone would define it, a monster. 
Previously, the only evidence of the corpse's existence had been the widely varying reports and descriptions of spooked eyewitnesses and a few shadowy telephone calls to the police and the newspapers. But now they had solid evidence. And if that speck of DNA evidence was right, that meant that the note was in fact written by the corpse. The police had never received a written communication from the corpse before. Even though there was no direct evidence to link the note with the corpse, like a fingerprint on the note itself, the words chosen had a consistency with the previous communications. The phrases, scourge of decent society and the good citizens of New Holland had been used by the corpse before. If the person who wrote the note was not the corpse, at the very least, he would have had to have seen the previous communications. That narrowed the field somewhat, but still, too many parties fit that profile. Although the newspapers did not publish the exact text of the communications made to them, they did acknowledge publicly that the corpse, or at least someone claiming to be him, had contacted them by telephone and letter. The press had also published accounts that the police had been contacted. Again, the exact text of the communications had not been divulged. The exact statements of eyewitnesses made to the police had not been published either, but the tabloids had definitely interviewed these eyewitnesses, who had repeated their accounts almost verbatim. There was no law against it. Madison and Chief Pringle agreed on all these facts. Check the back issues of the Bugle and the Herald, Andy, Chief Pringle said. I want you to find out if they published any of those phrases used in the note, if they were public knowledge. I'm on it, Chief, Madison said. You'll have that later on today. Right now I'm going over to Eastern to interview that professor. Find out about that ring if I can. Right, good thinking. Keep me advised. Captain Madison left the chief's office filled with dread. Not because of the corpse, but because he had to talk to a professor. Throughout his academic career, Andy had been intimidated and afraid of teachers. As soon as he graduated high school, he looked for an alternative other than college. He thought about the army, but there wasn't a war going on at that time, and he sure as hell didn't want to sit around some cramped metal barracks, occasionally going out to the dusty countryside to perform war games. He wanted action, and he wanted it now. So he tested for enrollment at the New Holland Police Academy. He did very well and shot to the top of his class. Upon graduation, he was given a prime assignment. Although he was made a detective, it was in the roughest downtown precinct New Holland had to offer. A landscape of criminal gangs, random thugs, murderers for hire, and rampant dealing in brick. A typical Saturday night in that urban wasteland offered up more activity than a Hieronymus Bosch painting. Andy loved mixing it up with the baddies, getting out in the field, and getting dirty in more ways than one. Madison found he had a knack for solving the more difficult cases that had his colleagues stumped. He began to be noticed among the higher-ups in the department, and was quickly promoted to the rank of Captain of Detectives. About five years previously, he had been tapped by the chief himself to be his personal right-hand man. His eyes and ears among the massive detectives and officers that made up the department. In that period of time, he had expanded his role to be a sort of detective at large, with the chief's personal stamp of approval giving him carte blanche to move within the department at will and, as Chief Pringle put it, grease the wheels. To Madison, that meant ignoring the department's bureaucracy no matter how many toes got stepped on or whose feelings got hurt. Of course, he could not break the law at any time. Not break, but bend it a little. Well, that was purely up to his discretion. It was a power he used sparingly and carefully. It all depended upon who was watching. 
That method of operation certainly made Andrew Jackson James Madison more than one enemy in the police department, from the rank and file to the top brass, but he felt secure in his position as long as Chief Pringle stood behind him. Of course, with such power came great responsibility. There was bending the rules, and then there was breaking the law. It was a fine line, but a sure one. Madison had to walk that fine line every single day between propriety and results. The rules existed for many reasons, sure, and he respected those reasons. But he knew that results got the biscuits buttered. And Madison had put into practice many times the old saw that it was much easier to apologize than it was to ask permission. Soon enough, Captain Madison arrived at the university and made his way across the campus to Brockton Hall, where Professor Hildeborg had an office on the fourth floor. He ascended the creaky staircases of the ancient ivy-covered building until he finally reached the fourth floor. He found the office door marked Professor S. Hildeborg and rapped on the glass. There was no response. Madison tried the doorknob. It turned freely and the door opened. He slowly pushed the door free of the jam. As it creaked like an ancient schooner, a shaft of light slowly illuminated the dark and dusty room. The blinds were drawn down tight, leaving the only light that which came from the doorway. Madison saw walls covered from floor to ceiling with bookshelves. Each bookshelf was crammed to the brim with books, books, and more books. The books filled every cavity and spilled onto the floor where they were stacked in tall piles. An old electric fan twirled lazily, giving weak relief to the stuffy atmosphere. Next to the window there was a giant rickety desk, its dark varnish peeling away. On top of the desk were piles of papers and more books stacked impossibly high. As he peered around the piles on the desk, he saw the figure of the professor, bent over in a huge desk chair. His eyes were closed and he was motionless. He's not breathing, thought Madison, who rushed over to the old man's side. Professor Hildeborg, he shouted, grabbing his arm. At that, the professor awoke with a start and let out a gasp. What is it, man? Can't somebody take a quick nap anymore? The professor demanded. Who are you? <laughs> I'm sorry, professor, Madison gulped. But, but you seem dead, Professor Hildeborg cackled. <laughs> You're not the first person to tell me that. My wife used to say that to me all the time. In bed. <laughs> he continued cackling. Professor Hildeborg, I'm Captain Madison, New Holland Police. He flashed his badge on identification. I see. The professor rubbed his eyes and yawned. You caught me during my daily nap break, Captain, but I'm always happy to help out the men in blue. How may I assist you? Well, we have quite a puzzle on our hands, Professor, but I am told that you are the man to help us solve it. Now, I'd like to show you something. Perhaps you can tell me what you know about it. Madison brandished the ring in its plastic evidence bag. Now, please do not remove it from the bag. This is evidence in an important police matter. Professor Hildeborg grabbed the bag and held it up in the dim light. Uh, uh, yes, yes, of course, he said distractedly. He reached into his desk and retrieved a jeweler's loop. He squinted through the device with one eye and examined the ring. Uh, where did you get this? he asked. Uh, that is not for public consumption at this time, Captain Madison said. Uh, do you know anything about it? Oh, yes. Yes, but I haven't seen one of these things in years, he muttered. 
So you recognize it? Madison asked, hopefully. Yes, yes. Beautiful specimen. The professor put down the loop and the ring. Well? He stared Madison dead in the eye. Captain, this is a ring that was custom made for the members of a secretive religious cult. A cult spoken about in hushed tones in back rooms and hidden passageways. A cult that has remained obscure for years. But uh, you happen to know about them? <laughs> Things like that happen when you get to be my age, he cackled. I've crossed paths with them several times, but they are all anonymous. No one seems to know who the members of this group are, even myself. But one thing is known for certain. These are dangerous people. How dangerous? Madison asked. Uh, I don't want to alarm you, Captain, the professor said carefully. But I will tell you this. They are criminals, and they are not afraid of the police, or anyone else for that matter. They've been underground almost since their founding. They have been responsible for a long series of crimes going back decades, and none of their members have ever been prosecuted for any crimes, or even suspected of any crimes by the authorities, to my knowledge. Madison felt his interest level rise the more the old man went on. Oh, well, uh, what kind of crimes? <laughs> I can't give you a specific list, Captain. But you name it, they've probably been guilty of it. They've been pulling strings and making things happen for decades, uh, all without anyone knowing their identities or their activities. Just who are they? Madison asked. Nobody knows. Their individual names are known to none but their own secretive number, it is said, the professor murmured. Yeah, yeah I, I don't mean their names. Uh, what are they involved in? What are their goals? What are they all about? They are the hidden hand that moves the chess pieces on the board of life. They are the spoon that stirs the pot and the grease that spins the gears. I see. I, they sound quite powerful, Madison said. More than you know, the professor intoned with more than a jot of dread. Now you said that they're a uh, religious cult. Well, what are their religious beliefs, professor? Uh, quite complex, but I'll simplify it for you. They perform a type of pre-Christian faith, first established in Northern Europe over 2,000 years ago. <laughs> they worship the ancient Norse gods. Their patron god is Bolverk, the Norse god of pain and suffering. It is one of the aspects of Odin, the king of all the deities. These people believe in the racial superiority of the Scandinavian people, 
and the eventual return of the spirit of the Viking to a tradition of control and dominance over all of the lesser races. These people make Hitler look open-minded and generous. So, uh, this ring was made in Sweden or maybe Norway? Madison asked. No, Captain, this ring was made around 1935, and it was forged right here in New Holland, Hildeborg said. Really? Yes, yes, in fact, I know the person that made it. He is still here in New Holland and still has a small shop. Uh, what else do you know about them? asked Madison. The professor paused. He leaned forward in his elderly chair, which squeaked loudly in protest. He spoke in hushed tones. I could tell you more. They are called the Bolverkin. If you look up that term on the internet, you can find out some of their history. But a better idea is to look through the archives of New Holland newspapers from 1925 to 1935 or so. I'm sure you could get more certain information from that source than what I could dig up from my faulty old memory. Any other information you can give me? Professor Hildeborg rolled his eyes and considered for a moment. He raised himself out of his chair with great effort. He shuffled across the floor, moving slowly to a tall bookshelf, which seemed about ready to collapse. He reached out and yanked out an ancient volume, which he showed to Captain Madison. I will give you this book. Study it well. Absorb its contents. Anything and everything you will need to know about these people is contained between its covers. What is it? Madison asked. This book is very important. This religious cult based their entire founding upon the words it contains. It was written in 1904 and published privately in Stockholm, made in very small numbers. Please guard it with a strong hand. As far as I know, it is the only copy of this volume held in a private collection. The professor's gnarled old hand passed over a threadbare, dusty tome, rather thick, the title was printed on the cracked cover in gold leaf, but was barely legible. Madison was just able to make it out. The Secret History of the Norse Race. He opened the book and glanced quickly at the interior, noting that it was written in English. Uh, it's in English, Madison barked. Yes, the professor replied. It certainly is. That was done deliberately. Since it was published in Sweden, there would be comparatively few souls that could read it, so there would be a, a much smaller chance of the authorities discovering its contents. Ah, clever of them. 
I will give this a good look. Thank you, Professor. This should be of great help in the investigation. Uh, my pleasure indeed. Madison cast his mind back over their conversation. Uh, Professor, you said that the person that made this ring is still here in New Holland. Could you tell me who he is? I can do better than that, Captain. I can tell you where he is also. His name is Lyndon Mueller. He has a workshop in the Bottoms, the Van Riper building on Dornacker Street. Well, thank you, Professor. I really appreciate your help. Not at all, my boy. Glad to be of assistance. Now, if you'll excuse me, I've still got 25 minutes until my next lecture. I'd like to finish up that nap if I could. Of course, Professor. Goodbye, Captain. As Madison shut the door behind him, he noted Hildeborg settling back into his chair and shutting his eyes. Within seconds, he began snoring up a storm. Funny old bird, he thought, smirking. You have been listening to another chapter of The Corpse, Book One, The Menace in the Mirror, by Scott Mercer, read by the author. Music by Kevin McLeod and Competech.com, licensed under a Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. If you would like to support this podcast financially, please go to anchor.fm forward slash Scott dash Mercer. That's S-C-O-T-T dash M-E-R-C-E-R. Instructions for downloading this podcast are also available at that site. You may contact the author at the following address, scottmercermail at gmail.com. S-C-O-T-T-M-E-R-C-E-R-M-A-I-L at gmail.com. Be sure to listen in again next time for the next exciting chapter of The Menace in the Mirror on Spectacular Stories.